0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to
1: New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Eva Glisic, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Barbara Martin about her book, Dissident Histories in the Soviet Union, From De-Stalinization to Perestroika. Barbara is a postdoctoral researcher within the Department of History at the University of Basel, and she's a specialist in the history of Soviet descent. Barbara, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Um, Barbara, it's wonderful to have you with us, um, and I was wondering if we can start um, by you telling us a little bit about yourself.
2: Um, So, Basically, I got my Ph.D. from the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva in 2016. Uh, the book I am presenting today uh, was my my doctoral dissertation, um, which I published. Uh, and currently, I'm working on the second book project. I think I will mention this at the end. So. Um, so my interest is generally in the in the history of Soviet descent, um, and currently also the, the the history of religion in the late Soviet Union.
1: Fantastic, um, and maybe we can start by um, just exploring a little bit this history of Soviet descent, and um, you can tell us um, how you became interested in this topic. Um, and especially in this topic of how Soviet dissent manifested itself in the domain of historical research and writing.
2: Well, um, this uh, came about because I I did I, I wrote my um, my master thesis on the the memory of um, of Stalin era repression. Uh, my. my thesis was um, on the history of the the memory of the Holodomor, this man-made famine in Ukraine, um, and I was interested in uh, how it played in the relationship between uh, Russia and Ukraine, so in in post uh, in post-Soviet times, um, and this um, drew me to the question of how this uh, this very important periods, uh, historical periods um, of the, the Soviet Union, this uh, this history of Soviet repression was remembered already in Soviet times. I knew that um, Nikita Khrushchev had denounced Stalin's crimes at the 20th Party Congress in 1956, and I was interested in what had been the reactions to this, uh, to this secret speech um, in the 1960s, 1970s. And of course, here, um, the most important work, which um, I'm sure all of you know about, is the Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh, which was published in 1973 in the West and which was such an important work in revealing the the history of Stalin-era repression, the Gulag, And so I started out with this uh, quite superficial knowledge about this period, and I started uh, looking at uh, other authors who uh, had published on these themes and who were um, working from within the Soviet Union. Uh, So, this is how it all started out.
1: Right, interesting. And uh, with, when you mentioned your uh, Solzhenitsyn, he's one of the four um, authors that you follow through your book. Um, so uh, tell us a little bit about the, the the four main characters that really are the core of your uh, study. How you selected these authors, and um, how did you go about finding your sources and the source base for this study?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So there's uh,
2: basically four main figures, as you said. Uh, one of them is Alexand Solzhenitsyn. Another one is uh, Roy Medvedev, um, who published a famous book um, entitled Let History Judge, also about the the history of uh, Stalin-era repression, uh, which was published in 1971. Um, then there's Anton antonov Afsienko, uh, who was the the son of a famous uh, Bolshevik revolutionary, Vladimir antonov um, and. So so this revolutionary was repressed during the 1930s and Anton as well went to the Gulag. Uh, and as a result of this, uh, he had a great desire also to, to denounce Stalin's crimes. And in 1980, uh, he published a book um, which later appeared in English under the title uh, The Times of Stalin, Portrait of a Tyranny. Uh, and then the last uh, figure is Aleksandr N- um who was a professional historian in the Soviet Union, uh, who published a book on uh, the beginning of the, the Second World War in Russia, what they called the Great Patriotic War. Um, the, the book was entitled June 22nd, 1941, which is the first day of the war uh, in the Soviet Union. Uh, and it denounced the way in which uh, Stalin failed to prepare the the Soviet Union to this um, yeah, the Nazi Germany's invasion. Uh, so. The way I selected these figures is that um, I wanted um, to, to pick figures who had published uh, re- research, historical research, not just memoirs or or literary works, because there had been a number of um, of memoirs and and literary works uh, published on the. The history of um, of Stalin era repression, but um, I was interested in people who had actually done research on the subject, and then it was important that these works had been published already in the Stalin in the Soviet era, because um, there were a number of researchers who wrote, uh, as they said, for the drawer, which meant that they knew that it this was not going to get published. They nonetheless wrote. Uh, But for me, it was important that these were works which actually had an impact on readers. Um, And uh, I also wanted to concentrate on Soviet Russia because uh, there were obviously the same processes happening in various Soviet republics. Uh, But then there were different dynamics, Uh, the question of uh, nationalism, uh, if we take, for example, Ukraine, there were obviously people writing also about, um, about it, Soviet power in Ukraine and the, the, the problematics are, are quite different. Uh, so, so I wanted to concentrate on, on Soviet Russia. Uh, so basically, the, the four figures I selected were the most prominent, I would say. But of course, my, my book is not complete there. Other interesting figures I, I could have picked. Um, and then while I was doing my PhD research, there was one case uh, which I examined, uh, but which didn't make it into this book because I, I also published another book in Russian on the subject, and several articles, and this is the historical collection Pamyet, uh, which was um, a kind of, of journal, uh, there were five issues of which, uh, which were published in the late 70s and early 80s um, by, by a group of, of young uh, amateur historians. Uh, and so, yeah, this book was published in Russian in 2017, so I don't really examine this case also although it's a fascinating one and concerning the sources that i used um so i was um, i was lucky to get access to the personal papers of roy medvedev uh, which is like a huge um, corpus of uh, very different sources um and um, this is in Moscow, and then also the, the papers of Alexander Nekrich which uh, in which are located at the Hoover Institution Archives at Stanford University. This is also a very interesting corpus of sources. Uh, with Anton Antonovacenko, uh, he was um, still alive when we met, and although his papers were not at... Um, a state archive um, uh, could actually stay at his place and, and go through his papers. <laughs> so this was also an interesting experience. Uh, the the only figure I could not um, really cover extensively with, was was Alexandr Solzhenitsyn because um, his uh, his personal archive is not open to to researchers at the moment. Uh, but there were some some published sources that I could use. Uh, uh, concerning Solzhenitsyn, for example, the the letters uh, he received when he published uh, his first literary work, One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, these are letters which are important for the publication of the the Gulag Archipelago because um, after this first publication. Uh, in 1962, uh, he received hundreds of letters from people throughout the country because he was the first person to, to speak about repression um, in in um, in literature. and And these letters, um, they, they were letters of, of former um, gulag prisoners who told him about their experience. So. Uh, this was an important source for him for the Gulag Archipelago, and and these letters were in part published. Um, so, um, these various materials, and then there were also um, the the archives um, the, of um, Samizdat material. Samizdat is basically in the in the Soviet era. Um, this kind of um, uncensored. Um, network of, of um, distribution so to say of of uh, various uh, uh, texts um, so when people would actually reproduce on on their typewriters texts that they like and make several copies which they would distribute to other people so there are uh, archival repositories of the sense that texts um, in, in budapest at the open society archive and also in bremen in germany Uh, So basically, these are uh, the materials that I used.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. That's a very uh, wide range of of sources uh, and very different entry points into the story of these four um, uh, history writers. Um, Now, I'm interested that your discussion of um, dissent histories begins with uh, Nikita Khrushchev's famous speech at the 20th Congress um, of the Communist Party in 1956. This is the famous speech, right, where he denounces Stalin, the cult of personality, um, and the crimes that Stalin committed. Um, I was wondering if you can tell us About the subsequent process of de-Stalinization and the impact that this had on history writing and history scholarship uh, in the Soviet Union.
2: Uh, Yes, so the secret speech was a very important moment. Um, It doesn't mean that the Soviet people didn't know anything about repression quite a lot. of them had uh, relatives who had been arrested, um, some of them who had died in the Gulag or been been shot. Uh, but um, every one of them thought that this was an individual mistake, and no one had an idea of the whole scale of of this terror. And even Nikita Khrushchev um, said that he he didn't realize. Um, Uh, the the whole scale of this uh, until he actually um, asked uh, uh, people to do research on this for for the secret speech. And so this is called a secret speech, but it actually wasn't um, really secret because it was first read um, during a a closed session at the, the 20th. Party Congress, but then it was read throughout the country in various uh, party meetings, um, uh, also in work collectives, um, in the uh, uh, communist youth uh, meetings as well. So it means that there were millions of people who actually heard about it or either heard the speech itself or heard that um, there had been such a speech um and um by the way um there's a, an interesting book um by Kathleen Smith um entitled 1956 uh, summer 1956 which um tells um it tells the story of the the year 1956 um and the the whole um discussions throughout the country that this raised um and it raised obviously a lot of turmoil, and uh, the Soviet leadership didn't really know what to do with this um, because um, they didn't want uh, the Soviet people to uh, to start revolting, and um, so so it was really Khrushchev had opened the, the Pandora's box uh, with this secret speech, and then they tried to close it again. Um, so there was. Uh, between 1956 and 1961, there were uh, as there was a succession of uh, thaws and freezes, um, and in historical writing, um, this was complicated for historians because uh, some of them tried. Um, to to use this this new uh, freedom to speak about new new topics, but um, there were also uh, repressions against those who were too bold. Uh, so, for example, um, Eduard Borjalov, who was the deputy editor in chief of Vaprosi, story uh, questions of history. A famous uh, j- historical journal um, tried to stimulate the participation of readers with conferences and try to open open up new themes. Um, and then he was criticized at the highest level in the Central Committee of the Party, um, and for for these discussions, um, and and he was dismissed. So uh, this discussion was quite quickly closed. And then uh, things changed only after the 22nd party Congress in 1961, when this time uh, the, the denunciation of Stalin was public uh, for the first time, um, which means that uh, all the, the speeches at the Congress uh, were published in the press. And then there was this very symbolical gesture uh, that um, Stalin's body, which um, was um, in, in this mausoleum on Red Square, along with uh, Lenin's body, was actually removed from the mausoleum and reburned by the Kremlin wall. Uh, so this really showed that he was no longer this uh, sacred figure. And after this, we have uh, the beginning of um, a short-lived wave of publication uh, of anti-Stalinist works, uh, especially literary works, uh, and this starts uh, with uh, One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich by uh, Solzhenitsyn, as I mentioned. Uh, but this doesn't last very long because um this this work was published in 1962 and then already in 1964 Nikita Khrushchev is ousted from power by his political opponents and this um destalinization theme um is already um um discarded along with Khrushchev's uh, other policies so uh, there's um there, there's this this new new shift um but the, there were a few historians uh, in the 1960s who were able to to do some work um on on previously taboo themes uh, I can cite for example uh, Victor Danilov, who was uh, from the Institute of History of, um, at the Academy of Sciences of the USSR, and he began, began to study the history of the collectivization of Soviet agriculture. Uh, and this was a, a topic which was very politically sensitive because it raised the question of uh, the repression of the so-called kulaks uh, and also the, the history of the famine that was caused by the confiscation of grain, especially in Ukraine, but also Kazakhstan and other regions. Um, and Danilov was never allowed to uh, publish this, this monograph uh, because it was too sensitive. And then uh, Alexander Neckrich, which I considered in, in my research, uh, also tried um, to tackle um, sensitive um, subject, the the question of Stalin's role in the, the Second World War. Um, Nikita Khrushchev himself uh, had criticized Stalin for his his um, wartime management uh, in the secret speech. Uh, but nevertheless, um, Neckrich was really... Um, and tackling a complicated subject and he managed to publish his book uh, in 1965, just before there was a change in this uh, official policy, uh, but eventually he was uh, excluded from the party for the publication of this book uh, in 1967.
1: So that's that's interesting that you mentioned Nekrich and, and Solzhenitsyn and, and their reactions to in, and their writing in this period. Um, what about Medvedev and, and Osinko's work at this point?
2: Yes. Yeah, so um, I mentioned the professional historians, but um, then there were also people who were not professionals who started writing on this uh, this theme of Stalinism, um, Stalin-era repression and um so both Antonov facienko and um and Roy Medvedev um were not professional historians, but they had a, a personal interest in the in the subject um for for Roy Medvedev it was the fact that his own father was uh, arrested during the terror and died in the Gulag. Um, so he wanted to to write a work on the subject, and he himself was a party member. He, um, he had joined the party after his father was officially rehabilitated in 1956, and his wish was to help the, the Communist Party overcome this, uh, this dark period of its history. Um, draw the the lessons of this tragic event and move on towards uh, a democratization um, of of public life and um he started writing this this historical research um in this context with the idea that it could be published in the Soviet Union uh, he even showed it um to several um secretaries of the central committee uh, one of them was even Yuri Andropov who would later uh, later on become first head of the KGB and ultimately the general secretary of the Soviet Union um, and at first, before Khrushchev was ousted from power, there were some quite positive reactions to this research. Um, but things uh, also changed after after 1965 uh, for Medvedev, who was ultimately um, also excluded from the party and ended up publishing uh, his work in the West in 1971. Uh, and for Anton Ofevchenko, there was um, also a similar process. First, um, he tried to work within the system. Uh, he he was interested, obviously, in his father's figure because uh, Vladimir An- Anton Ofevchenko was this very um, iconical figure who had... Um, Arrested the um, the provisional government in the um, during the the October Revolution. Um, this this very charismatic uh, figure. So um for for him it was really important to rehabilitate his father publicly and he published first this biography of the, his father in also in 1965 but he was disappointed by the the reactions to this work um he had the impression that um his father was still considered a uh, trotskist and all this um the yeah this opprobrium around his father's name Uh, was still there so um, this um, bitterness that he had um, turned into a new project which was um, this biography of, of Stalin which was um it, it's a very very dark negative portrait of stalin uh which uh, he also ultimately published in the west because it was clear that uh, he could not do so in the soviet union and then if we take alexander solzhenitsyn he also started by publishing officially uh, one day in the life of Ivan denisovich uh, but he he encountered also um, this negative reactions first um, he was acclaimed as like this new um, th- this new famous author whose works were were extremely popular uh, but after a while um, he was no longer able to publish in the Soviet Union and his two important novels um, the first circle and um, uh, the cancer words uh, had to be published in the West because uh, they were not accepted by Soviet censorship. And during this time, he also began work on, on the Gulag Archipelago based first on the, the letters of, of uh, political prisoners he received and also um, all kinds of materials that, that he managed to collect. And it was clear that this work was could not appear in the Soviet Union, so he already wrote this um, with the intent of, of publishing it in the West.
1: I was really struck by um, the fact that these uh, four figures that you have selected all write different histories with different motivations, and they have very interesting engagement with those with those histories and and the. Uh, different approaches. Um, I'm interested in what happens uh, in the next stage um, uh, when we see Leonid Brezhnev come to power. Um, how do debates about the Soviet past evolve at that point, and and how does the his- history writing of these four dissidents evolve as well?
2: Um, thank you. So yes, I mentioned that there is a change after um, after Leonid Brezhnev comes to power, and this is connected with the fact that um, this, this new Soviet leadership uh, has the impression that there has been too much talk about uh, um, the Stalin-era crimes. Um, although in our view, obviously it was very limited, this discussion, but there's this impression that um, there has been too much blackening of the Soviet past and that we should create a more positive view of Soviet
0: history.
2: And so um, progressively there's um, these the, um, themes are excluded from, from the public debate. and uh, this is also due to the influence of uh, various figures and the the Soviet leadership in the Central Committee who are who could be considered as Stalinists. And one of them is uh, Sergit Rapesnikov, uh, who is uh, a friend of Brazhnev from the time when they worked together in Moldavia. And he was appointed uh, head of the Central Committee Department for Science and Higher Education. Uh, he, he himself was a historian. And he really um, did a lot to to launch repression against uh, those um, dissidents or, or um, figures who who thought differently, uh, who wanted to to speak about uh, the Stalin era repression. So he he played an important role uh, in getting Alexander Nekrich excluded from the party for. Uh, publishing this work on on the Second World War. He also played a role in getting Roy Medvedev excluded from the party, although at this stage uh, Medvedev had not yet published uh, Let History Judge, but his manuscript was already circulating um, among certain circles, and there was a fear that uh, he would publish this work in the West. Uh, so this is a figure who really tried to, to suppress the theme of Soviet repression from the public debate. And uh, starting from ni- the end of 1965, beginning of 1966, there's a, lo- a lot of fears uh, within this liberal uh, soviet intelligentsia that there will be an official rehabilitation of stalin um, and this is justified by these various moves um, um, for example in 1965 there's the celebration of the 20th anniversary of uh, the, the victory in in the second world war and in his speech Brezhnev uh, mentioned stalin just once um, but this is uh, still Uh, something symbolic, and then there's applause. Uh, So so there's this feeling that at at the um, forthcoming uh, 23rd party Congress, Brezhnev might uh, rehabilitate Stalin officially. And in in January 1966, uh, we have this um, um, open letter of uh, 25 prominent representatives of the intelligentsia who on Brazhnev not to rehabilitate Stalin, uh, and there's uh, throughout the late '60s we have waves of such uh, letters, um, which protest against uh, the publication of official, uh, the, of um, positive mentions of Stalin in the press, um, but um, at the the 23rd Party Congress. Brezhnev doesn't actually rehabilitate Stalin. So we don't know exactly what happened uh, behind the scene, but it seems like um, there were contradictory um, lobbying forces uh, within the leadership, those who wanted to rehabil- have rehabilitate Stalin. And then there there were also these important voices within um what we could, would call uh, now civil society, although at the time uh, it was maybe anachronic to speak of civil society, but we have these this voices uh, against such uh, rehabilitation. And as a result, there's a kind of compromise, which is um, not to have an official rehabilitation, but also not to mention Stalin-Era repression anymore. And this is basically the... The kind of uh, compromise we have uh, during the the Brezhnev era. Um, this is also uh, in 1969, for example. It's there's the um, 90th anniversary of um, Joseph Stalin's birth, and there's a lot of um, positive publications about him in the. In the press by by various uh, various people, memoirs, etc., uh, which also again raises a lot of um, of worries uh, that um, concerns that he might be rehabilitated, uh, but then ultimately the um, on on Stalin's anniversary, there's. Uh, There's a small article in uh, newspaper Pravda in which uh, this fact is acknowledged, but there's not um, an actual official rehabilitation. And we actually have um, the transcript of the discussion around this article in the Politburo in which we see that um, there's this unease with the subject. and and they want to show that they're not actually rehabilitating him, uh, but at the same time they have to do something. So, uh, so it's a it's a subject that that, um, that is it's not like an actual official rehabilitation is taking place as uh, as people thought at the time.
1: Right, and at this point in time um, during uh, the Lez- Brezhnev uh, era, what a uh, uh, the works that are most well known by the four authors that you look into, um, whether within Soviet Union itself or abroad.
2: Um, you mean the works by these these authors?
1: Yeah. What I guess I'm interested. What are some of the recognizable works and topics that they are working on at this point in time?
2: Um these authors uh well there's obviously the the topic of the uh the gulag um which is um, in in the gulag archipelago which is a very important one um, well let history judge is more like a, a history of of stalinism And first, uh, Roy Medvedev starts with uh, this chronology, which is quite restricted and um, which starts basically in 1934 when uh, uh, Kirov was um, assassinated. It's usually in, in the secret speech by uh, Hushov it's considered as the starting point of the repression. But then over time, he expands the, the chronology. He focuses not just on the, the 30s, but he starts looking at the 1920s when there's a repression of the, the opposition within the party. Um, and then he looks also at the, the 40s when there were campaigns also against uh, um against um campaigns of repression within uh, Soviet science the arts etc um and anti-semitic also repression uh so this is one aspect uh, alexander rich focuses on the war Uh, But then afterwards, um, he also starts looking at other topics. For example, he starts writing a history of the deportation of um, small minorities which were deported during the the Second World War. Um, For example, we know about the Chechens, but there were a lot of other small people uh, who were were deported uh, because they were suspected of... um, collaborating with the, the Germans during the occupation, uh, for example. And um, so this is one theme. Um, and then, yeah, Antonov Afsienko, uh focuses also on Stalin's figure. Obviously, Stalin is... It's, it's this um, very <laughs> central figure. Although for Solzhenitsyn, for example, Stalin is not um, an important figure in itself. Uh, he considers that the whole regime is criminal. Uh, and um, he considers that Stalin was only working into in the footsteps of Lenin. Uh, it's just a continuation of what's had started right after the, the October Revolution. Uh, so, so these, these are the, the main topics, I would
1: say. Yes, and, and um, each more controversial, I guess, than the next one. Um, yes. And some of them, of course, even even to, to this day. Now, your next portion of the book focuses on the Pira of, of period of, of Glasnost and, and Perestroika, things um, changed quite substantially at this point in time um, mm-hmm. in terms of the, the public discourse that, that takes place in the Soviet Union. Um, so walk us through uh, the, the dissident history writing um, during this period.
2: So yes, there's this change, um, what do we call this policy of Glasnost, um, leads to the publication of works that were. Previously banned. Uh, so, first of all, we have the publication of literary works on the subject. Uh, for example, uh, one important um, work is uh, Children of the Arbats by Anatoly Rybakov. Uh, these are works that deal with um, the figure of Stalin and, and the Stalin era. Uh, in a literary way, and they're more acceptable to the Soviet leadership um, than, than historical research. Um, so this starts already in 1987. Um, then there's uh, films, um, for example, uh, Repentance by uh, Dengiz Abuladze, Jordan uh, director which deals in, in a metaphoric way with with this question of uh, repression and these works produce an important effect on on the public they um, they reveal these crimes in in a new way um, but um, during the first period uh, the the authors I mentioned are not published uh, because they're their dissidents, uh, they have been published in the West, and so they have this image, um, which is still quite negative uh, for for the Soviet authorities. And then next stage comes in uh, 1988. Um, in April 1988, we have um, Soviet journal that's interviews. Um, Roy Medvedev, and this opens up a, a new period. Anton uh, Antonov-Fevsienko Anton is also um, interviewed uh, during that year, uh, and their works starts, uh, being, start being published um, around this period, first um, in journal publications, then they come out as books. Uh, and... It's only in 1989 that we have the publication of the Gulag Archipelago um, in the summer of '89, which is obviously the most important publication which everyone has been expecting, and the Soviet intelligentsia has been lobbying uh, for a year. Um, for this to happen. But for the Soviet leadership, um, it was a very complicated issue because uh, Solzhenitsyn was um, openly anti-communist, which is uh, very different from Roy Medvedev's position, for example, who was always a communist and who undertook his research um, really from with this perspective in mind that the Stalin era was a uh, limited period of time during which um, there was this um, lawlessness, repression, but uh, that this can be overcome to actually build democratic socialism. Uh, and Solzhenitsyn has a very different perspective for him. Um, the, the whole communist period uh um, is a period of lawlessness and, and the, the whole system has to be abolished um, for, for a new Russia to, to be reborn uh, based on a on, on new, new basis. So, um, so it was more complicated uh, to, to publish him. Uh, and then uh, if we look at Alexander Nickrich during this period, uh, so he had emigrated uh, in 1976, um, being of uh, Jewish origin, and he had uh, uh, settled in the United States. Uh, he worked at Harvard University, and he had published also this important work on the history of the Soviet Union, Utopia in Power, uh, with um French historian Michel Heller. Uh, and this work was never published in, in the Soviet Union. In Soviet times, it appeared only in post-Soviet Russia because, again, it was uh, clearly anti-communist. So um, this was not uh, acceptable to, to the authorities.
1: Yeah, I think it's um, you're interesting the way that your book shows that this is not, and emphasizes really, that this is not a unified block in terms of this descent but rather that they're within these um, this is a history writing they're writing they're very different positions and and also the pathways that these authors take i was very surprised i think you mentioned at one point that negrich also came to australia at the Australian national university is that correct
2: um, I don't remember, but um, it, yeah, it might be that he travelled um, He he traveled to several countries. I, I remember Japan, uh, and I think yeah, they, they could have been also Australia, uh, because yeah. he was uh, he. Yeah, he did not have like a a stable position. He had to live off grants, mm-hmm. and so he took uh, invited professorships in various places as well.
1: Yeah, it, it's really interesting to see the sort of global aspect of these dissident, Soviet dissident histories as well that, that uh, appears throughout, throughout your work. Um, now, uh, one of the very interesting themes that comes through your study is this problem of truthfulness and objectivity in dissident histories. Can you tell us a little bit about the sources that uh, these four authors used to write their histories and write about the Soviet past?
2: Yes. Um, so there were indeed uh, various uh, political perspectives, uh, from from communist to anti communist, um, and this is obviously natural even in any kind of historical writing, uh, the author brings his or her perspective, uh, but this is even more so um, in the case I am studying, because these are people who did not even consider that uh, objectivity was something possible possible or even desirable. Uh, they did not, except for Neckrich, who was a professional historian, the other author authors were not professionals, and they saw themselves um, also as political actors who had a role to play in ensuring that the history of uh, political repression was not forgotten. Um, there was um, obviously no no objectivity on the part of the the Soviet uh, leadership, uh, which controlled what could be published and what could not be published. Uh, so they felt that they they had a role to play in in ensuring this that uh, this history was not forgotten, um, and they had their own. Uh, perspective, also as victims of this repressions, uh, both Alexander Solzhenitsyn and Antonov-Afineev went through the Gulag: uh, eight years for Solzhenitsyn and thirteen years for Antonov-Afineev. So obviously, this this has a huge impact, and, and they did not consider that they can they can speak about these things. Uh, uh, in an, in an objective way and for them there was no, no such uh, no such goal. Um, and then the other a- aspect that influenced also their narrative was uh, the sources they used, um, which were predominantly oral oral testimonies. The reason for this was that they did not have access to archival documents. Uh, so they had to do with uh, with the sources that they had at hand. Um, I mentioned the letters of, uh, of political prisoners that Solzhenitsyn received. Uh, and in the case of Roy Medvedev of, or Antonov Avsienko, These were also oral testimonies uh, primarily of old party members, old Bolsheviks, who had um, been participants um, of the October Revolution, the Civil War, and who had occupied um, high functions uh, be- within the, the party apparatus and who had later been repressed uh, in the Stalin era um, and these were were key witnesses who could say a lot about uh, um, the whole functioning of the party machine under Stalin um, so these the sources were really important and when these books were published in the West, Western historians uh, were very interested because they themselves had not had access to these sources. Uh, But this raised also the question of the the truthfulness of these testimonies because um, historians who work with oral history know that um, this can be a very unreliable source. Uh, Obviously, human memory is not perfect. Uh, Then there's the subjectivity of the person Uh, who may not remember things accurately or who may remember selectively. So for the historian who uses uh, such sources, it's always a challenge to tell um, the truth from from the rest. Um, So there were a lot of criticism when these works were published during Perestroika about mistakes, um, and I think This is unavoidable in any kind of historical work, but this was even more so in the context in which these works were written. Um, And, for example, Roy Medvedev um, gave his manuscript to read to hundreds of people, and he really tried to minimize these mistakes. He also wrote many different uh, successive versions of the same work, and each time he would improve it and Correct those mistakes that uh, he uncovered, but uh, someone like Anton Antonovashenko uh, faced the challenge that he was almost blind, so and he was very isolated. So there were obviously even more mistakes in in this kind of work. Um, so this was a problem. And yeah, in terms of the sources that they used, um, apart from from oral testimonies, we can. Also mentioned the uh, um, official publication, newspaper cuttings. Uh, there had been work, not, not works but um, articles published. Um, um, for example, obituaries of, of uh, well, not not obituaries, but um, commemorative articles on on. Different party figures, uh, which had been published during the, the thaw before, while well, well, Khrushchev was still in power, and Medvedev, for example, worked a lot of with this um, these articles, uh, collecting this material. Um, so, so there were there were some sources they could use uh, use, although they were quite limited.
1: Uh, and, and in relation to that, and you've already touched a little bit uh, on this um, in your in your talk, but um, I was wondering whether there is a difference or how would you explain the difference between writing about Soviet history in, in the country, within Soviet Union, and in exile?
2: Um, so, yes, in my work, I, I look at um, the case uh, of Roy Medvedev, who remained in the Soviet Union for his whole career, um, what I call inner immigration because uh, he was a dissident and he published his works in the West uh, but at the same time he lived in the Soviet Union and then there's the, the counterpoint which is the case of Alexander Neckrich who who chose immigration in the 1976 and continued um, his historical writing in the West so it's interesting of course to compare these two perspectives, and of course, um, this was a very different position. Um, Roy Medvedev, who remained in the Soviet Union, um, had the constraint that he he risked uh, imprisonment any time if he wrote something that was um, too sensitive. And we can see that um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, when he published the Gulag Archipelago, he was almost immediately arrested, and they um, they sent him on a plane to to Germany. So he was um, he found himself in exile against his own will. Um, so Brian Medvedev really wanted to avoid such fate. He wanted to be able to remain in the Soviet Union and to continue his work, and this meant that um, to a certain extent. Um, there was a degree of self-censorship, um, although he didn't admit it fully. Um, for example, he told me that it, he wouldn't criticize those leaders who were currently in power. Um, and this this was a strategic way of avoiding, of avoiding repression. Uh, for example, he he published a book on a biography of Brezhnev, but only after Brezhnev had died. Um, and he published a biography of Khrushchev, but also again uh, when Khrushchev was no longer in power. Uh, so so there was this degree of adaptation um, to the the context of possible repression, and this allowed. Raimid Medvedev to to remain um, in in liberty. He was not arrested, although he suffered various forms of um, of threats and and pressure. Um, had several house searches and uh, was warned several times um, to work his uh, to to stop his um, so called anti Soviet activities. Uh, but he was able to continue working. And if we look at Alexander Nekrich in the West, he emigrated because um, in, in the Soviet Union he could no longer publish his work and the choice of emigration was the choice to continue his career and he had much more liberty. Uh, but at the same time, um, of course, being isolated uh, from from the country you're writing about uh, is also a different kind of challenge. And uh, and he faced the uh, the material difficulties of being this this emigre scholar uh, who had to to find grants to fund his research and. Uh, uh, he had to forsake the the comfort that he had mm-hmm. as an official historian in the Soviet Union.
1: Yeah, One of the things that I would, was wondering if um, you came across any kind of big surprises during your research, whether it's in terms of sources or, or conclusions that you came to in, in writing your book.
2: Uh, so I would say that for me, the um, most important aspect that maybe what surprised me most was... Um, to, to find out that um, there was really this progressive change of orientation of these various figures that first they had tried to adapt to this um, this context of the the Khrushchev era when there was in the so called thaw when there was some limited publication uh, about uh, the history of, uh, of the Stalin era and and all of these figures tried in one way or an- or another to to fit into this fra- framework to adapt their discourse uh, to adapt to censorship. Um, and then then there was this too low evolution and the, ultimately the decision to publish in the West, uh, which did not come about easily. Um, so for me, it was interesting to look precisely at this transition, uh, the way in which their discourses evolved. And it's very interesting for this to look at Roy Medvedev's figure because you would say he was uh, this... Um, convinced communists, uh, why did he publish in the West? There's kind, this kind of contradiction. And we can really follow um, his, his archival fund is, is great in this way because we have several versions of his manuscript. Um, and the first version from 1964, uh, which was just before uh Astor, We can see that it's a work that could potentially, um, if the situation had evolved differently, it could potentially have been published in the Soviet Union because it was still very much inscribed in the framework of uh, Hushchev's secret speech. Um, It was not highly subversive, um, but um, then we can see when when we look at the version from 1966 and then the one from 1967, we can see progressively how it is changing, and he encounters uh, new sources. This is the time when he starts speaking with these old Bolsheviks, uh, and his perspective evolves because he realizes that the, the, the repressions were not only in 1937 1938 but they began already um, at the end of the, ni- the 1920s and and so he starts looking at new new themes the the history of uh, Soviet collectivization of agriculture and industrialization etc so we can really follow this evolution and it's the same thing with, with the authors, uh, the other authors that, that I look at. And for me, this was the, the most important, interesting aspect um, that, that I found in my research.
1: Yeah, that that sounds fascinating. And I, and I presume, um, I believe that the opportunity to work in this Medius private archive must have been quite a unique experience. Um, now, I just want to thank you for joining us today and, and sharing um Uh, your research with us. It's a fascinating uh, story. And I think our listeners will very much enjoy enjoy reading your work. Um, Before I let you go, I'm, I'm interested to know what are you working on at the moment?
2: Thank you. Um, so at the moment, I've turned. I'm still studying the the same period, but uh, I've turned to, to the topic of religion, and I'm interested how in how this um, this um, late Soviet um, generations uh, from the intelligentsia became interested in religion. We see this decline of um, of communist ideology uh, and this replacements by um, by a new national identity, um, depending on, on the Soviet republics. I'm, I'm looking at Russia, uh, so this is the, the Russian national identity, and in this connection, the um, this interest in in religion, um, Russian Orthodoxy. So, so I I follow this change uh, from the 1970s to the 1990s, um, and I use uh, all history. So, <laughs> like Medvedev, Antonov, uh, I, I, I interview a lot of, of uh, people, and um, this also has been for me a, a fascinating project.
1: Yeah, that sounds like a terrific project. And um, I just want to thank you again, uh, Barbara, for um, uh, joining us today on the New Books Network. And I wish you all the best uh, for your next project. I hope to see you here again. Thank you. Thank you very much for the invitation.